Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. In our first installment of Drawing Democracy, we talked about how the census sets the foundation for the redistricting process and how reapportionment, which is essentially the balancing of power between congressional districts based on where people live, can shake up not just the House, but the Electoral College as well. If you haven't listened to that yet, you can do that now on the Politicology feed. It was released on February 25th. Nearly all of you will be familiar with how the Electoral College has often resulted in an overwhelmingly popular vote margin for Democrats, and yet the ultimate winner is a Republican. And of course, have your opinions about whether the Electoral College should still exist because of this. Well, there is a similar phenomenon that happens not just in Congress, but across state legislatures as well, where the majority of a state's votes may be cast for Democratic candidates, and yet Republicans retain control of the state legislature. Or, if Republicans don't maintain control, they tend to have a disproportionate amount of power relative to total votes cast for each party's candidates. And this has, of course, been the case in the U.S. House of Representatives as well. Many of you also already know that the reason for this is redistricting. But today, we're going to continue this deep dive by pulling back the curtain on a very specific piece of law Republicans use to manufacture power in Congress and state legislatures, other statutes that govern this process, and how a number of landmark Supreme Court cases have altered and in some cases hampered oversight of this entire process. I'm joined today by David Becker. David is the executive director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. He is a CBS News contributor and was a senior trial attorney at the Department of Justice in their Civil Rights Division and an expert in the niche and complex area of redistricting law. David, welcome back and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ron. So we just recently had you on the Roundup last week, and I've now briefly introduced you as an expert in election law, but maybe you can start by telling folks how you came to be an expert in this, uh, in this very specialized area. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's kind of a long story. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to shorten it a little bit. Um, so, so I'm a lawyer. I, I graduated law school, uh, gosh, many years ago now um, in California. And uh, was practicing law as an entertainment litigator in Los Angeles for several years. Um, and usually when I say that, people think that sounds very sexy and cool. And actually what it is, is it's business litigation for crazy people. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, I found myself, as many associates at law firms are, uh, late at night going through boxes of documents back when there were actual boxes of paper documents that you had to go through thinking to myself, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. And if I do this really well, my reward will be to become a partner at a firm overseeing other people doing this. And um, it, there's, a, there's a famous law for young lawyers that um, becoming, par- uh, becoming partner at a law firm is like winning a pie-eating contest and the prize is more pie. Um, <laughs> so um, I decided to apply for my dream job. I knew I would not get it. My dream job was to be a voting rights attorney for the United States Department of Justice, um, something I'd always dreamed of doing. And I, uh, it's a very highly competitive job. I knew I wouldn't get it, but I felt you know, if I did it and I didn't get it, then I could say I have no regrets and I'll just be a lawyer in Los Angeles for the rest of my life, um, which would have been perfectly fine. California is wonderful. Um, Six months later, though, I'm in my car with all of my stuff moving to D.C., and I've been here ever since, and I worked for seven years under both the Clinton and W. Bush administrations in the Justice Department. And when I left the DOJ, I thought, should I go back to just being a lawyer and kind of being a generalist, or should I 
kind of double down and keep focusing on elections. And uh, elections was my passion. Voting rights was my passion. And so I stayed with it. And I, um, I don't regret that decision at all. That's been fantastic. And I've worked. Um, I, I didn't do litigation anymore, uh, starting around um, 2008 or so when I uh, worked at the Pew Charitable Trust and eventually led their elections program there, and then started my own nonprofit in 2016, continuing the work to improve how elections are run in the United States. Man, that's a long story packed into a very concise answer and <laughs> extremely impressive. Folks, there's nobody with a better set of experience, I think, to talk about this topic than David. So before we get started, to kick off the show last week, we began with the discussion of Brad Raffensperger's defense of Georgia elections, but also his comments uh, conflating Stacey Abrams and voting rights groups' charges of voter suppression in 2018 with the really absurd claims of widespread voter fraud in 2020, which is just not true. And I want to take a minute here just to clarify the record for those of you who reached out to us on Twitter and elsewhere, that these two things are absolutely not equivocal. And there's a clear difference between actual voter suppression efforts, even if they can't be legally proven, uh, that they changed the outcome of an election, and the far-fetched sort of conspiracy theories spewed by Sidney Powell and Giuliani and the My Pillow guy. And David, I, I just wanted to hand it over to you for a minute to sort of clarify what we're talking about here, why these two things aren't, are, those two things are different, but also what we should be aiming for in terms of uh, voter fraud claims, election security, and and how the public understands rhetoric from different sides. Right. Uh, um, this is a really good point. I'm glad we're having an opportunity to kind of talk about it in more detail. Voter fraud, first of all, is extremely rare. It's almost non-existent, it, but it's not non-existent. It's, it happens so extremely rarely. And one of the things we hear from kind of the, the people who've spread the lie of massive voter fraud is that only, the only reason we can't prove it is because it's so hard to, it's so hard to detect. That's false. I am a former federal prosecutor. I have been in trial courts uh, looking at this evidence. Voter fraud is actually an easy um, crime to detect. There's a ton of documentary evidence. There's a ton of witnesses. We detect it when it happens almost all of the time. And it's extremely rare. It almost never happens. And the, the fact that voter fraud is being used to restrict access for eligible voters is a real problem. And it's not a problem because it's changing election outcomes. That's a political problem. And, and, and obviously, the political party should be concerned about that if they think it's changing outcomes. But from my perspective in the work that I do, um, it's a moral problem. It's a, it's a problem for democracy. We should want all eligible voters to vote in a system of maximum convenience and security. That's absolutely true. There are reasonable integrity measures that can take place that do not restrict voters' access to the ballot. Sometimes they often enhance them. Things like drop boxes for mail mm -hmm. ballots. Though that's both really convenient for voters. It's also good for integrity because it eliminates the postal service as a delivery mechanism. So this is where we have to be really careful that there is no moral equivalence between what we're seeing now based on the big lie of voter fraud, um, especially when we ran such a secure, such a transparent election in 2020, and legitimate issues of voter suppression, which do happen. And they may not change the outcome of elections, but they are morally wrong. And I, for one, am very grateful 
for um, the people that fight those efforts. I no longer do it, but those efforts should be fought and they should be fought fiercely. Our goal should be for every eligible voter in America to vote conveniently. And we should celebrate that even when the political party that we might choose loses. That means democracy is working and it sends a clear message to the losing party, the losing candidates, that they might need to think about how they approach the electorate. Here, here. Okay. Um, and also, you know, for our listeners who took me to task for not correcting or giving more room in the moment to discuss this, I'm sorry. I will try to do better about that in the future. And I'm, I, I'm glad we could just take a couple of minutes to unpack that. So thank you, David. So in our last Drawing Democracy episode, uh, Mike Madrid and I talked about gerrymandering and state legislatures essentially drawing districts to tilt the map in their favor and cement power. There are several flavors of gerrymandering, which we'll talk about in a minute, but first let's talk about what makes it possible in the first place. So there's a provision in Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that requires the creation of majority-minority districts in certain circumstances with the intent of ensuring that minority voters have an equitable way to participate in the political process. On our last Drawing Democracy episode, I briefly outlined the hierarchy of law governing the redistricting process. And for context, the Voting Rights Act is not at the very top, uh, which is the Constitution, but as federal law, it applies right beneath that. So can you start by summarizing the context for passage of the Voting Rights Act and what its intent was with regard to redistricting, and then walk us through how Section 2 operates to create uh, majority-minority districts? So first, let's start with the Constitution. The Constitution very clearly lays out that every 10 years, there shall be a census and that there should be reapportionment after that census, particularly of congressional districts. And um, the way that law has been interpreted is that those congressional districts need to be very close to equal population within a state. There's, uh, of course, variation between the states because they don't all evenly divide out into um, five, uh, 435 districts. But um, within a state, they're supposed to be as close to zero as possible. There might be a little bit of variation permitted, but um, very close to zero. Um, and as we all know, the history of American voting rights is um, uh, has been dark at times. Um, and the leading into 1965, of course, we saw Jim Crow laws pervasive uh, throughout the South uh, still, um, had been since Reconstruction. And uh, African-American voters in particular and Latino voters were having uh, a great number of barriers placed in front of them in order to just get registered to vote, let alone to actually cast a ballot. And the impetus for the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the catalyst uh, after all of those decades of, of vote suppression, um, of disenfranchisement of minority voters, was, of course, the march from Selma to Montgomery that culminated in the beating of John Lewis and others on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Um, if you haven't been to Selma, Alabama, I highly recommend it. I've been there twice. Um, I uh, actually, as, um, as a Justice Department attorney, I was in Selma in September of 2000 when they elected their first black mayor in their, in their city's history. Wow. It is a city that is two-thirds, it's actually probably 80% now black, and they had never elected a black mayor until 2000. And that gentleman, um, his last name is Perkins, defeated the same mayor, the same white mayor of Selma that had been there in April of 1965. This is Joe Smitherman. It's one of the things in my life I will never forget having been there at that moment and 
And I really encourage everyone to go visit Selma, walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. You will get chills. I just did. Um, the, br the bravery of so many people that is still resonating to this day um, as the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act is pending in Congress right now yeah. um, is, is remarkable. But that that's the Bloody back Sunday, job here. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, um, that, that led uh, President Johnson um, to say enough is enough. Um, he had worked with the civil rights community for, for years, but um, finally it was time to pass the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It passed in August of 1965 and was signed into law. Um, it's really interesting to read the entire Voting Rights Act now in the context of how we think about it. In 1965, it actually was more than anything a law that protected the right of minority voters to register to vote because that was being prevented. It's so hard to believe nowadays that just the act of registering to vote could be so controversial, but it provided for federal registration officers in the states to um, to to make sure that people would get registered if they were eligible to vote, regardless of their race. And that was probably the initial impact of the Voting Rights Act that we felt the most, because very quickly from 1965 on through 1970, we saw registration rates just skyrocket to come close to parity with white voters. Not quite, but close. We're now um, now in the United States to put this into context. We're we're pretty close to parity in many states. There. Um, you know, George is a great example where uh, black voters and white voters have about the same registration rates right now. Um, that's very good news. I mean, we have to we have to recognize the progress, even as we note that there are some things we still need to work on to reach um, true fairness. But the progress in registration has been remarkable. But then 1970 came around. And by the way, 1970, there was also a renewal of the Voting Rights Act. The, the Voting Rights Act has been renewed several times um, and it had been held by Does the it have a sunset in it built in? Um, it, it did. Certain sections of it had sunsets. So for instance, it had, it had to be renewed in 1970. It had to be renewed in 1975. It had to be renewed again in 1982. And by the way, each one of these renewals was, in, was entirely bipartisan. Um, the 1982 renewal famously was the longest, went for 25 years, didn't be, need to be renewed again until 2007. And in 2006, the Voting Rights Act was renewed again. Um, by a nearly unanimous Congress. The vote in the Senate was literally 98 to zero. I think there were only about 10 uh, Republicans in the House that voted against it. So it was nearly unanimous. Um, and of course, during that time, um, redistrictings along with any other voting practice or procedure was subject to the terms of the Voting Rights Act. And there are, there are several different provisions of the Voting Rights Act that are relevant for those of us that work for voting rights in a more effective democracy. But with regard to redistricting, there's really two provisions that were most prominent, Section 2 uh, and Section 5. Section 5 is the provision that said in certain states, um, and this was defined by, whether, by how much disparity there was between minority voter registration and white voter registration at the time. So there was a formula that any state that fell below a certain level would have to submit all of its voting procedures, any changes to any voting procedures at all, from statewide redistricting to moving a polling place across the street, would have to be submitted to the Justice Department for preclearance, and it could not be enforced until the Justice Department pre-cleared it. If the Justice Department objected, it could not be implemented. 
Um, this is a very effective tool, and it largely covered states in what we think of as the old Confederacy, uh, states like South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. But it also covered states, particularly after some of the renewals like Texas, uh, parts of California, um, parts of Florida, parts of North Carolina, and even some states because of the formulas, uh, some townships in New Hampshire and Michigan. And you, you're putting this in the past tense, did. Later on, we're going to talk about why. But maybe you can talk about Section 2 and what that did to create minority-majority districts. Yeah, so Section 2 basically says that any law that discriminates against minority voters that negatively impact their right to vote is is illegal. And that includes um, redistricting plans because what we would see happen is that minority voters, often where there were... um, white populations nearby would vote in a way different from those white populations. The white populations would consistently vote contrary to the um, uh, to how the minority populations were voting. And if those minority populations were um, cut up in certain ways in different districts, you could basically take, a dist- uh, for instance, a jurisdiction that was 40% minority and make every district 40% minority, meaning the minority voters would never get a chance to elect their candidates that they choose. And um, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act uh, forbid that. And the way I usually think about it, um, Section 2 and Section 5 both look at things like redistricting, but they look at them in different ways. Section 5 looked at them um, sub- uh, Subjectively, it compared them to the previous plan. How much power did the minorities have before? And you could not do what's called retrogress from that. You couldn't backslide from that. That you couldn't put minorities in a worse position than they were before. Section two is different. Section two is an objective measurement. You're looking at objective fairness. Are are minorities large enough and cohesive enough in how they vote? that they could have the opportunity to elect their candidates of choice, and that's being prevented. That's basically how we talk about Section 2. And part of that, and we're going to go into the weeds here, but that's what this, there's a lot of vegetables in this episode, as we like to say. Part of the complexity, uh, as someone who's drawn those lines in the last decennial, is knowing uh, how to demonstrate whether or not there is cohesion among that group of voters, right? Because ballots are secret. We can't demonstrate that this group of voters definitely all votes for the same candidate, right? To demonstrate that they're voting for a candidate of their choosing, which was the intent of the Voting Rights Act, right? So can you talk about that and how, if you can't ever know uh, who somebody voted for, how can you demonstrate that they vote uh, cohesively? Yeah, this isn't just vegetables. I mean, we're getting down into the, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, the Brussels sprouts or whatever else any, anyone might uh, So basically at the core of this is something called racially polarized voting. And what that means is, are can we tell that minority groups are large enough and cohesive enough in how they vote, that they're voting in a certain way for certain candidates, and that the white voters tend to vote differently? And if they were put into districts together and the whites outnumbered the minorities, would they effectively shut the minorities out from being able to elect candidates of choice? And you're right. This isn't, you can't look at individual ballots. And sometimes you don't even know the race of individual voters. If you just look at data on, on a spreadsheet. Um, so what we do is we look at precinct level data usually, um, and at the precincts, we do know how each precinct votes. We'll have a certain number, you know, the, um, candidate A got 500 votes, candidate B got 
200 votes. And we can look at that and say, okay, this precinct also happens to be looking at census data and perhaps other data we have, voter registration data and other things. This precinct might be 90% black. It might be 60% black and 30% Hispanic. And there's expert testimony about that to try to figure out exactly where that is because um, we're not actually going into these precincts and knocking on every door and asking people what their race is. We're trying to figure that out based on data that we have available. From the census. And so, uh, yeah, the census usually. There's yeah. also voter registration data that often can be very helpful. Um, it's it's All of this data can be imperfect. Um, and to get really into the vegetables here, um, in a lot of states, precinct geography and census geography does not match up. So um, you'll have census blocks and you'll have precincts and they will overlay each other and you'll have a precinct that's in two or three census blocks and you have to extrapolate what the race of that precinct might look at, look like because you only have the election results at the precinct level. You don't have them at the census block level. So getting all of that data is uh, it can be a challenge. You'll have expert witnesses, social scientists, political scientists looking at this data, looking at voting patterns. Um, and, you, you know, for instance, one of the things you'll often start with is looking at um, extreme precincts, precincts that have very high levels of, of homogeneity, 90 um, percent black, 90 percent white precincts to see if you can tell that there are certain differences. And also what's very important when we're looking at this is to know which elections to look at. People vote differently in different level elections. They might vote differently for president than they do in statewide elections, than they do in state legislative elections, than they do in local county races. Um, and so looking at, uh, I'm going to get really wonky here, this there's a term exogenous yeah. and endogenous elections. Mm -hmm. Endogenous elections are the most relevant. Those are the elections that are for the same race as the map you're drawing. So for state legislative races, looking at state legislative elections in the past will be more relevant than looking at presidential elections. That doesn't mean you don't look at presidential elections. It's just they're not as probative of what you're looking for. And also another very important point, and this might, um, this might seem counterintuitive, but primary elections are often much more important to look at than general elections. Because, um, you know, in some areas, minority voters tend to always vote for the same party. In many cases, the Democratic Party, but that's not always the case. Um, Cuban voters in South Florida, for instance, or Vietnamese voters in places like Southern California or Texas, there's places where that's not true. And so what you often see is in primary elections in whatever the dominant party is in that area, you'll see a white candidate and a minority candidate running against each other. And the winner of that primary is going to likely get elected. But the primary election is the one that tells you whether there's polarized voting, because you'll see, in some cases, white people voting for the white candidate and minorities voting for a different candidate. I'll make one other quick point, which is that um, we often talk about minority candidates. And that's really shorthand because these aren't always minority candidates. There are cases where the candidate that minority voters prefer is white. Mm -hmm. um, or of a different minority than they are. You have to really dig into the data to see what you're finding and not make any assumptions about voting patterns and really learn who the minority voters are, are preferring. Who do they want to represent them? And that governs it. it it's not right. about political power. It's not about uh, descriptive representation. It's, a, it's about mm -hmm. letting the minority voters speak through their vote. And that's because the language of the statute is 
a candidate of their choosing or something to that effect, correct? And Yeah, and that, we, we talk about candidates of choice, exactly. Right, right. And not necessarily a candidate, for example, of their race or of their... And so you're looking whether... You're, you're really not looking at who they're voting for, but rather whether they're voting together for the same candidate. Right. Section two of the Voting Rights Act does not protect the rights of minorities to vote for Democrats. Right. It does not protect the rights of minorities to vote for anyone who is of the same race as them. It protects their rights to choose the candidates they prefer and to not have their vote diluted for um, because of some kind of racial purpose or even if, if there's a racial effect. So we've got plates and plates of vegetables here, but for a specific purpose, because I want to slowly zoom back out here so that we can sort of paint a picture for folks about why this matters. So let's say if these things are true, right, if these uh, circumstances are true and you can demonstrate cohesive voting among a protected class of minority voters in a in a in a uh, in a confined geographic region that is sufficient to make up a district, either a state legislative district or a congressional district. My understanding is that if you can draw a line essentially around this group of voters and the size of the group is uh, is large enough to constitute the district, if it meets the constitutional requirements, in other words, then essentially you're obligated by federal law to draw that district in such a way that they represent more than 50%. 50% is a, is a number, I think, that probably comes from case law as the, as the bottom uh, threshold. But between 50% and 100%, there's really no statute that speaks to how do we give these voters enough influence to choose a candidate that they want. So how do we, how, can you talk about how that works and whether or not I've described that accurately? Yeah, it, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in several wrinkles there. Okay. <laughs> so case law seems to suggest a minority would need to form 50% at least in a district for their, to establish section two liability. In other words, that, that, the dist- that districts need to be drawn. But the remedy can be different than that. Mm. And, and actually, when we're talking about remedy, um, majority-minority districts is actually kind of a misnomer. Um, mm. there, uh, there are a lot of places, uh, particularly as we've moved now 55, 56 years past the, the Voting Rights Act, where enough of the white voters in a community will what we say what we call cross over. They will cross over and vote along with their neighbors who are minorities. Um, and so white crossover voting can be quite significant. John Lewis's district, his old district in Fulton County, Georgia, mostly in Fulton County and Clayton County, Georgia, is a great example of this. That district was, to my knowledge, never 50% African-American. Um, in fact, uh, I litigated a case uh, about that district back in the 2000 round of district, uh, redistricting. And it was at about, uh, if memory serves, maybe about 45% black. And but there w- there was consistent white crossover voting sufficient to make sure that an African American would win that congressional district. That kind of thing comes into play as you're considering what the remedy is for a mm. violation of Section Two and drawing the districts. And so, actually, what you're looking for is you you can draw districts with minority populations probably as low as thirty five percent, maybe even lower. Hypothetically, um, I've seen and drawn some that were in the thirty seven to thirty eight percent range where you could still say this group is still going to see their candidate of choice being elected 
through whatever process um, that you're seeing. And that's because, uh, you know, there was, there were 12, 13, 15, 20 percentage points of the, of the white community who was voting uh, along with the minority community. Um, Or you might even get districts where um, you have multiple minority communities um, that vote cohesively with each other. And then you get into a, a much more complex situation and something we're seeing much more now where you've got minority communities that are large enough and cohesive enough, but they're not voting with each other. And what do you do in that circumstance where you've got um, uh, black voters, Hispanic voters, uh, Asian American voters um, voting cohesively, but not cohesively uh, together? And we should mention, because I don't think we've done it yet, that the way, and perhaps there are other methods that I'm not aware of, but the way the case for uh, vote cohesion ends up being demonstrated in legal contexts is through the use of some really complicated math regression analyses, right? So because ballots are secret, we end up having to do what amounts to a lot of good statistical guessing about whether or not this cohesion actually exists because, again, the ballots are secret, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I was wondering if we were going to get to regression analysis yeah, in, why this, not? In, in this discussion. <laughs> um, please don't ask me to perform one. Right. I could not do right. it. Right. Um, but that's where the political scientists come in. Um, they take a series of elections over time where you know the race, um, you, you, you know where certain precincts are, and you know who you can tell which precincts are preferring certain candidates over that time, and you run a regression analysis on these, and you see if there's consistently a, a, a cohesion amongst the minority voters and also of the white voters in the opposite direction. There's liability under Section 2 that requires the drawing of minority opportunity districts. Then you move to the remedy phase and you start figuring out how to draw those districts out. Right. Okay. All right. I think that um, we've gone so deep here because I want everyone to understand just how complex this process is and not just the, the you know, the technology required to do it, the skill required to do it, but also how complex the law is that governs this entire process. So now that we've done that, and we, I mean, we could spend, we could spend weeks on this and people do, but I think that's sufficient. So I want to talk about how this gets used to create racially gerrymandered districts and specifically cracking and packing. So cracking is when a legislature splits a community into multiple districts to dilute their influence and make sure they can't have any significant sway in an election to elect a candidate of their choosing. And then there's also packing, which is when you draw districts to limit the power of a demographic group by essentially putting them all into one district. And that's why we saw districts like Alabama's 7th congressional district, which was 62% black in 2009, get redrawn in 2011 to include more predominantly black neighborhoods in Birmingham and Montgomery so that there were almost no black voters in surrounding districts. So how should we be thinking about balancing the creation of majority minority districts with these gerrymandered districts? And would curbing gerrymandering actually hurt majority minority districts like the RNC has, uh, as I think disingenuously suggested. Yeah, this is, this is such a complicated, uh, area and it's so great. We're talking about it because obviously, although we're trying to, we haven't really mentioned politics yet, politics. Why don't we start there actually? Why? I mean, because, because I think that'll help us zoom out and then talk about, uh, the questions that I just asked you. Right. So, so, so let's uh, first let's put this in context of the 1960s. Um, there were efforts to 
um, restrict um, minority voting power that were based on pure racism. In fact, that was probably one of the primary reasons for it. Um, you know, especially if you look at the Deep South, um, that was, Deep South at the time in the 1960s was very democratic. Um, both black voters and white voters were Democrats. They didn't vote for the same Democrats necessarily, but it was very democratic. It was not about political power so much. It was really preventing racism. But what we saw develop over time, and I don't want to say racism doesn't st- exist. It still does exist, and it still is a factor here. But the political considerations have grown as um, whites move to the Republican Party and African-Americans have coalesced particularly among in, in the Democratic Party. And I don't want to leave out um, other minority groups as well. This is also to, to, to some degree true with some Hispanics and others. We've seen a real attempt to use the Voting Rights Act or to use it as a justification to maintain political power. I, I You know, packing and cracking... Uh, besides being kind of great descriptive terms. I mean, the way to think about it, I've, I've seen some great um, uh, diagrams of this. If you, had a, if you had a jurisdiction, a state that was basically divvied up into four districts, and that state was 49% black, you could draw four districts that were 49% black, and that is called cracking. Each one would be 51% white. or you could put over half of all the blacks in one district and make it a 100% black district and then divvy up the others among the other three. And you would have one black district out of four and that would be called packing because you've basically halved minority voting power in that case. Um, so both can be a problem. That's why section two can be so challenging because you're trying to balance these things out to come out with just the right amount so that minority voters can still comfortably elect their candidate of choice, but there's not too many minority voters. Their votes are effectively wasted and minimize their political power maybe somewhere else in the state. Knowing this, political parties have used that to try to maximize their voting power. Famously in the 1990s, I think would be really the first time that I think the Republican Party realized how this could be used. And what they started doing was making um, deals with um, minority members of the legislature, um, often Democrats, to make their districts safer. Now, politicians always love safe districts because they don't have to spend a lot of money for re-election. They don't have to worry too much about getting re-elected. But that's not maybe what what's in the best interest of their voters. The voters might want to see more minority representation in the state legislature or in Congress. They might want to see more minorities um, rise up to chairmanships of committees and things like that that comes with more power in the legislature. And the Voting Rights Act protects voters, not politicians. That's exactly right. I mean, this is, in my career, I have sued both Democrats and Republicans. I'm very proud of that. Um, it, the Voting Rights Act is not about the Democratic Party. It's not about the Republican Party. It is about those minority voters and not the politicians that even they elect. Now, those politicians are often very good, and so that's not a criticism of them. But, you know, John Lewis would have been the first to say, you know, the Voting Rights Act did not protect him as a member of Congress. It protected his voters to decide if he should remain a member of Congress. And, um, and that, uh, I think that's a really important distinction when we're thinking about how the Voting Rights Act plays into all of these other considerations that come into redistricting every 10 years. 
So that was the politics of this. So I want to go back to those two original questions, which is really the important one is, would curbing gerrymandering hurt majority minority districts, you know, like the RNC has, has recently suggested? So I, I think we, I, I want to be a little... Um, thoughtful about how we use the term gerrymandering. Here. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a good point. There's a we tried to do this in the first episode, but you should clarify the legal the, the the legal weight that the word gerrymander has versus redistricting as a process. So, yeah, so gerrymandering is really it's it's just it's just a term. It's often thought of as a pejorative, um, you know, meaning that politicians have cut up the districts in a certain way that benefits them. Um, it doesn't really have a legal meaning. It's used in some, it's used in some of the cases, of course, and there is this balance uh, when it comes to districting um, that is conscious of race that um, is required under Section Two of the Voting Rights Act, but is also somewhat limited by a line of cases that originated with this case called Shaw versus Reno back in the early 1990s that says you can be race conscious, but race cannot predominate all other redistricting considerations. Um, what this means often depends on the map that, that's being reviewed. It sometimes depends on the composition of the court that's reviewing it. Gerrymander comes, of course, from, um, from uh, uh, it's actually Gary. He was a, a, a legislator in Massachusetts um, who uh, had a district drawn for him that famously looked like a salamander. And I, I, be, I believe a, a political cartoonist back in the early 19th century called it the, 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 the it would be Garymander actually yep. as a little point of trivia. <laughs> um, but um, we've called it gerrymander for some time. And we all know, we've seen pictures of districts that on paper look weird. Look like a Rorschach and, test. Exactly. Yeah. The problem is sometimes those are perfectly acceptable districts. It's it, that those are true communities, and it's just because the geography might be unusual. There might be some some land that is used oddly in that area. So you can't just judge it based on a shape that you see. Um, so there are a variety of considerations coming in. Um, courts are really looking at was when they're trying to determine if race predominated. In other words, you're allowed to look at race, but it can't predominate over everything else. Did you just set aside things like communities and geographic boundaries and compactness and other things that we value in redistricting usually and um, and just say race is the only thing that matters? But if you don't, if you avoid that problem, and most line drawers now I think are, fa are fairly sophisticated about how they do that, it's entirely possible to be race conscious and make sure you're not diluting minority votes um, when drawing these lines. You brought up the courts, so let's talk about a couple of cases, starting with uh, Shelby County v. Holder. So, as you mentioned, much of this process ends up in courts, um, and we should probably, you know, establish that uh, that is because, um, and we'll get to this, essentially, there are lots of groups and almost anybody has standing in redistricting uh, law in order to sue. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, most if you're a voter in the jurisdiction, you presumably have standing. Right. So, so this is a, it's a sort of special in that regards, and that's why there's so much redistricting litigation because once a legislature takes action, um, uh, there there are there are there are, there are mechanisms in place for citizens and citizen groups in order to sue to to have those evaluated and maybe overturned. So, in the last redistricting cycle courts struck all or part of the congressional redistricting plans in five states and drew the lines themselves in 12 states. And now several states have different institutions in charge of redistricting processes than they did in 2011. 
and in others, the partisan makeup of the state itself has changed. So how sort of broadly, how should we think about the role courts have played in this process? So I, I've I've talked to um, several redistricting commissions just in the last few weeks because there are more, as you mentioned, independent redistricting commissions that are out there. And um, uh, they have usually been supported by Democrats more recently, but not exclusively. I mean, there, there was a time when um, about 15 years ago when the Republicans were really pushing a a, a a um, independent redistricting commission in Ohio. Um, right, I remember when Democrats were in charge there. They, yep. they most of many of them just backed off once Republicans took control. Um, but one of the things I've been telling redistricting commissions and others who are drawing the lines is um, you're going to get sued. I mean, <laughs> don't try to draw <laughs> right. lines that right. are going to keep you out of court. Yep. You're, it's not going to be possible because because there are political implications, even if you're not drawing them based on political rationale. It's an inherently partisan process, right? Yeah. I mean, there's there's no way if you're looking at the state of Michigan that one or the other side, either Republicans or Democrats, are are isn't going to think we could have done better. And if that's the case, they're going to bring a lawsuit and they're going to try to do better because they can't do any worse. Um, So uh, there will be litigation on all of these. What's What's remarkable, although it sounds like so many, you know, uh, courts were drawing plans and overturning, we have to remember there are literally thousands of redistricting plans that are um, that are being drawn in the next year. It's not just congressional districts. It's not just state legislative districts at every single county where districts exist, which is a lot of them. Um, there are new new uh, plans being drawn. And, uh, you know, it I've. When I was with the Justice Department, I have sued uh, municipal water districts. I've sued cities. I've sued counties. Um, so these are all things that really need to be. And 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 when you get down to the local level, the racial dynamic can can be even clearer in some ways because the communities often really know each other. They live in close proximity to each other. And if there's a long history of racism in in a county, particularly in places in the Deep South. Um, there, there's, there's still even in 2021, an undercurrent of that, um, that, that might take you back to a time in the 1960s or even earlier. Um, so, uh, so yeah, there's, these things are going to go to the courts. Um, and the courts I think have done a pretty good job, but we also know that courts aren't completely neutral in how they view these things politically or ideologically. Um, their their conservatives on the courts have tended to uh, push back against um, too much federal intrusion into state processes, and they've tended to push back on the on the idea of race consciousness. And you can see a tension sometimes between how far we've come and how far we've left to go, and trying to figure out um, do we still need some of these laws today that have been there? That really gets at gets at the Shelby County case, which you just mentioned, um, which was a you know, in my opinion, a major act of judicial activism on the part of the Supreme Court to overturn a statute passed nearly unanimously in Congress and to interject the court's own judgment for. Um, the justification for the law and re- and replace Congress's judgment 
on the justification. That's something that normally you see conservatives uh, try to avoid, but uh, not in the case of the Shelby County case. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this because in her, and, and you can sort of tee up the the details of the case, but in her dissenting opinion in this case, the late notorious RBG likened the throwing out of preclearance with throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. So I want to I want to dive into the implications of this, but why don't you sort of um, establish for us what Shelby did? So um, Shelby County is a county in Alabama. Um, as the entire state of Alabama was, it was subject to Section Five of the Voting Rights Act, which again meant that um, whenever they made any voting change, they had to submit it to the Department of Justice for preclearance to pr- and they had to prove that it did not. Uh, backslide from where minorities were before. It did not retrogress. And the burden of proof was uh, was on the jurisdiction submitting the change. Um, basically, there were a group of conservative lawyers who were looking for an opportunity to challenge Section 5. And actually, I should say, um, getting really hyper-technical and legal here, they're actually challenging Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, which is where hmm. the coverage formula existed, oh, to I say see. that the coverage formula wasn't rationally related to its, the alleged purpose, you know, enforcing the 14th and 15th Amendment of the, um, uh, of the Constitution. So eventually, this case found its way to the Supreme Court, and um, in a 5-4 to four decision, the court held that the coverage formula uh, was not appropriate. It was related to, um, registration rates in the 1960s and seventies, but it had been, it had been used and upheld multiple times in between now and then. Um, and they found the, uh, I I believe it was nearly a hundred thousand page record insufficient and overturned the voting rights act. And, and again, one of the stated rationales and, um, Justice Ginsburg's dissent really nailed it, I think. One of the stated rationales is things are a lot different than they were in 1965 when the coverage formula was initially uh, created and that the record was insufficient and that we'll be just fine. We're not like we were in, in the Basically, 1960s. we don't need the federal government to babysit us anymore, right? That's, that's right. What the, that's what the argument was. Yeah. yeah. And and as if to um, as if to justify Justice Ginsburg's concerns, almost immediately after that decision, state legislatures in formerly covered states began meeting to pass laws that further restricted uh, particularly minority voters' ability to exercise their franchise, things like restrictive voter ID laws and other things like that. Yeah, I, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. You know, what is the what, what, what the implications of removing this oversight function of the federal government of preclearance, what it has done to impact election laws and voting laws across the country. And I think you just hinted at that, but, but sort of, I think all of this is relevant and extremely timely right now because of the ramped up efforts we're seeing in state legislatures across the country in order to do exactly what you just said. Yeah. If you think about um, laws that are being proposed at the state level or passed in states like Georgia, Florida, Texas, Arizona, all of those laws would have been subjected to Section 5 preclearance, meaning that before any of those laws go into effect, they, the, each of those states would have had to prepare a submission that proved that the laws did not put, put minority voters in a worse position than they were before. The burden of proof would have been on the state. And this is also from the perspective of, of law enforcement at the Justice Department, having been there for so many years, this is also 
important because enforcing the Voting Rights Act nationwide is a big job. There are only about 25, give or take, lawyers in the voting section of the Justice Department. And there's limited bandwidth to know everything that's going on everywhere at any given point in time. What Section 5 did is it pushed information to the Justice Department. Mm-hmm. It was coming in. There were there were dozens of analysts who were experienced in reviewing these submissions. And we, we would know every 10 years, particularly around redistrictings, that we would ramp up for the redistricting cycle. Because as I mentioned, it wasn't just you know, one plan or two plans in each state. It would be maybe hundreds. And um, the Justice Department would get 10, over 10,000 submissions in any given year usually. Um, all of those were reviewed with statistical evidence. And, and by the way, over 98% of them were pre-cleared. This was one of the other things that was raised in Shelby County that, that actually Section 5 is not a burden on the states, that um, the states got the vast majority pre-cleared. They had to move a polling place across the street because the other one didn't have adequate parking. Totally fine, no problem. But there were times when they would move a polling place across the street into a Knights of Columbus Lodge that was predominantly or even only white. And there's some history there in the Deep South in some areas that for those of us that didn't grow up in the Deep South, you need to, you you know, you can learn about. But you'd have to look very closely at those kinds of things because they could have a racial impact. And, you you know, there were many, many times where you would say, you you can't move the polling place there. You got to find someplace else. And, uh, and they would do that. And a lot of jurisdictions, what they would tell you is they liked Section 5 preclearance because it gave a sign-off from the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. If the voters had a problem with something later, they could say, oh, the DOJ pre-cleared this. It was okay. Um, and in fact, now, you know, at the point that Shelby County came out, which was nearly 50 years after, after the Voting Rights Act was passed, most of those counties and cities and states would tell you they had this down. They, you know, whenever there was a change, they had an automatic procedure for putting all that stuff together. They knew the lawyer they were supposed to talk to or the analyst at DOJ. And there was actually a good relationship there most of the time. Um, and, and, but, you know, by the 21st century, the vast, vast majority of changes were not racially impactful. I mean, they were, they were done for legitimate election administration purposes. Um, and you could tell those, those pretty quickly, but Shelby County, uh, the decision changed all that. And it meant that no longer is the DOJ having this information pushed at them. No longer are state legislators who might be acting, um, for racial reasons or might be acting in a way where they don't care about a negative impact on minority communities are now no longer restricted um, in their ability to pass laws that might have real negative implications for minority voters in the states. And and again, we don't have to think very hard about examples. Just look at what's happening in Arizona, Texas, Florida, Georgia today. It's happening right now. Just look at your local news headlines. Okay, I want to talk about one more case briefly before we then zoom out and do two things. Remind everybody why this matters right now and talk a little bit about what, uh, what they can do um, to get engaged more in this process. So uh, the the second case is Rucho versus Common Cause. And on our first episode, we talked about how gerrymandering can lead to dramatic diversions between a state's popular vote count and overall political parity and the results across each of those states' district races. In 2019, the Supreme Court in Rucho, Common Cause, basically decapitated federal oversight in this space. The 5-4 conservative majority found that partisan gerrymandering claims This is different from racial gerrymandering claims, which we've been talking about Section 5. Partisan gerrymandering claims present political questions beyond the reach of federal courts. And 
There was a lot of anticipation that the high court would do something to address or mitigate gerrymandering, and a lot of people were hoping uh, that that would be the case. Can you talk about the ramifications of this particular SCOTUS decision, whether we should expect to see an increase in racial gerrymandering in the new maps as a result, and sort of what this turned on and how it's going to impact racial gerrymandering? So Rucho, I think, was was a was an important but aspirational case. I mean, there had been some um, allusions in previous opinions about partisan gerrymandering. And just put it into context, there were states, uh, like Pennsylvania was was at issue in Rucho, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. And, and there were states, I think they had 19 districts, and Pennsylvania is about as close to a 50-50 state as you can get. But the Republican legislature drew a vast majority of those districts to benefit Republicans. Right. We should clarify, just to, for, for everybody, partisan gerrymandering means essentially drawing districts purely on the basis of party composition and nothing else. Essentially, that is the predominant reason you're drawing a district a certain way in order to preserve power, right? That's exactly okay. right. It might have it might have absolutely no racial element to it at all. It might be, it, it's just trying to maximize your political power. And by the way, uh, Republicans have done it a little more recently, but Democrats also do it. For instance, in Maryland, uh, Democrats did that there. Um, so whenever a, po- a party is in power, they may seek to maximize that power. And you can do that by drawing the lines. And often it won't have a racial element at all. It actually won't implicate racial uh, gerrymandering or racial uh, consciousness of, of drawing lines. It could, um, but, it, but it might not. Um, and the Supreme Court over some time um, kind of sent, said uh, in partisan gerrymandering cases, um, we're not going to say partisan gerrymandering is always okay. But this case isn't at the level where we're going to rule it illegal. That we're, we, we, in every case that came before them, they keep saying that. And so those who disliked partisan gerrymandering, um, I think most of us think partisan gerrymandering trying to, is, is, I mean, on its face, is bad. It, it, on its face, it just seems, sound, sounds bad. It looks bad, right? It, it's, it's, it's anti-democratic. Right. Uh, it is, you know, there, there should be some consideration there. It's why independent redistricting commissions are gaining some, um, uh, s- some support. Um, so partisan gerrymandering kind of rubs us the wrong way. We know it's wrong, but it happens. And every time the Supreme Court would review it, they'd say, well, this isn't bad enough. We're not going to say it can never be bad enough, but this isn't bad enough. They played and then the Rucho with case, the idea of maybe doing something about it. Right, yeah. right. The Rucho case was interesting because they finally said, nah, it's, we're never going to get into this, at least by a five to four majority. Now, that might change at some point in the future, or there might be a map that is so bad that the Supreme Court is forced to reconsider it. Partisan gerrymandering is going to continue as long as there are partisans who are motivated by political power and they have majority sufficient uh, to draw the lines. And that, you know, there, there is only one legislature in the entire United States that has divided power right now. I mean, just think about that for a second. Every single state other than Minnesota has single party control at the legislative level. We've never had that kind that of, um, yeah, divisiveness. So, so that means there are a lot of states where there's this opportunity Right. And that's not just Republican states. It's also some Democratic states. Um, and sometimes the governor is of a, of a different party and there might be some ability to um, might be some need to, to deal with that. You know, we think of Maryland and Massachusetts where there are Republican governors and Democratic legislatures. But oftentimes there are also veto proof majorities in the legislature that can that can over overcome those uh, those issues. So, you know, I think we're going to continue to see I don't think Rucho 
is a change. We saw political political gerrymandering before. We're going to see it after. And until we get independent redistricting commissions, which, by the way, are not a complete panacea for right, all problems. Right. I Yeah. I mean, I have a take on those that that is sort of loosely held. But given what I saw in 2011 after drawing lines and understanding the, you know, all of the self-interest that's involved on at everybody's on everybody's part. Redistricting commissions to me seem like almost a step backward. They do have some positives, but they seem like almost a step backward in that they take all that deal making and horse trading and they just, in some cases, reduce the number of people who can participate in it and put it behind a closed door, as opposed to the legislature where it's at least out in the open. And so that's one negative that I've seen to, to they're not perfect, but in many cases yeah, they do good, you. but you know, what, what is your, what is your, what's your opinion on them? So, so I, so I think both, whether it's partisan gerrymandering by legislators or independent redistricting commissions, they can both be done poorly or they can be done well. And, um, I, I think, uh, you know, for instance, transparency is very important. I've seen partisan redistricting, literally the, the, the maps I challenged in Georgia, uh, there was a single Democratic consultant sitting in an office behind a closed door. And I'm sure you've seen this before, Same. Ron. On the where, Republican where side, the, I've seen the, it. Legislators yep. would li- literally line up and knock on the door and come in and say, this is where I live and this is how I want my lines to be drawn. Um, not transparent at all. Um, you know, I think I think as long as you adhere to 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 principles of fairness and transparency, whatever the process, that's that can be good. I think it would be better if the courts came in and said there is a point in which partisan gerrymandering goes too far. There have been several scholars and others who've come up with uh, objective measures of that. I think, you know, nothing's perfect. None of these things are perfect. But, um, you know, I, I, I tend to prefer independent redistricting commissions to legislative redistricting only because it's better, not because it's perfect. Right. It's, 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 right. It still has a lot think, of problems. I think that makes sense. Um, it, but I think it's slightly more transparent. I think it's, I, I think it can be slightly better take some of the political considerations out. Um, a lot of people are unhappy. I mean, there was the famous in California, uh, two, uh, very prominent, uh, house Democrats, were drawn into the same district, uh, and they had rhyming names, Berman and Sherman, um, uh, in, in the same Los Angeles area. And that was, that was very notable. Those kinds of things can happen, but it kind of, when that happens, it kind of underlines that there's a fundamental fairness to that. I mean, um, so I think, uh, I think that can be a very positive thing. And one of the, one of the things I've seen with some redistricting commissions is there are sometimes efforts to limit the data that they can look at, um, uh, in particular, um, the residences of incumbents. Um, and I think there's some good and bad there too, because sometimes districts are drawn specifically. You'll see a little, a little outcrop from a district that is literally there just to capture the incumbent's house. Um, and that's probably something that the voters don't really realize and is not really obviously not done in the service of those voters. It's done in the service of, right. of the candidate. Right. And, and, you know, generally, well, this is probably an, a topic we don't have time for, but generally the journalism, the media coverage around redistricting is not helpful or useful to voters as they're trying to figure out what's been done. It's just, as you can tell from this episode with all of our vegetables, but I want to, now that we've talked about, you know, what the courts can do, I want to talk about what the American people can do here, because as we zoom out, 
we can we can, with the benefit of having dived into exactly how this happens, I think this helps put in perspective what we see at the macro level, what this all adds up to, um, or certainly what it can contribute to, which is um, gridlock in Congress uh, when when our institutions can become so calcified that they no longer respond to the inputs of their primary constituents, their stakeholders, right? That everyone gets frustrated, nothing gets done, and we and it and it only adds to this hyperpartisanship, right? You end up with you end up with politicians that don't reflect the will of the people who actually they're supposed to be representing and serving in the first place. And that is what everybody sees. Everybody sees the consequences. So that's 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 why we're having this conversation. This is happening in 2021. The census results aren't out yet, so the map drawing hasn't yet begun. But the data amalgamation, as we talked about earlier, the 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 disaggregation down from precinct data to census block data, that's happening now. Um, so everyone's preparing for this. I want to talk about what people can do to prepare for this process and what influence they can have as it as it begins to unfold. This is a really good question because you're exactly right. The the media will often cover this in a horse race fashion, like so many things that we deal with in elections. And we'll just be looking at, oh, you know, now there are X number of Democratic districts in this state and Y number of Republican districts in this state. And that doesn't really get at the communities and whether they're cohesive and what's happening to minority voters and others. I, I think first, um, it, it's, it is hard work for citizens to keep up on this stuff. And this is... Um, if they can, my first recommendation is go to hearings that are held, watch them. Um, they're usually live streamed, try to understand this. There are more and more efforts now by a lot of really good groups to kind of publicize maps on the internet and give people even line drawing, ordinary citizens, line drawing ability, um, uh, you know, we didn't have that 20 years ago. Right, right. Um, we didn't really have and, that 10 years ago. I mean, yeah, there's some new I mean, software out now that everybody can access. The tools that are available are, are, are very robust and almost everyone can figure out how to use them. And I suggest they do that. But I'm going to say something that might seem so simple and easy that is the most important thing. And it's not going to really take place until the next election. But that is turn out and vote in every election. When the line drawers try to maximize their political power, the way they do that is to create districts that are just barely large enough majorities of their party that they can win. In other words, if it's the Republican Party drawing lines, they, they want to draw a lot of 53, 54, 55 percent Republican districts. They do, they do not want – they want a lot of 90 percent Democratic districts and vice versa, um, which means that – in order to make partisan gerrymandering in particular as effective as it can, they have to take some risk. They have to shave their margins down. And that's why we see things like 1994 and 2006 and 2018, which is when turnout surges, all of a sudden, all of the political data that went into drawing those lines becomes obsolete because you've got a different paradigm. You've got a turnout surge that you've never seen. We saw in 2018, 50% of American eligible voters vote in that midterm election. That changed a lot of House races because of that. That was the highest turnout we had seen in any midterm election as a percentage in 100 years. Um, Basically broke the models. But broke their expectations. What what line drawers are doing is they're they're crystal ball gazing. 
Yep. They're taking past data and trying to figure out what it means for the future. And what individual voters can do and get all of their family members and their friends to do, don't just show up in presidential elections. Presidential elections when we get two-thirds of people showing up, or at least 60%. Show up in midterm elections. Yeah. Show up in primary elections. Show up in local elections. You will break their model. You will make it so they cannot ignore how you are going to choose to vote because they don't have a model for it. So uh, this is this is just so important. I mean, this is people don't understand why we can get the house. You know, even with gerrymandering, how did we get the house flipping in 1994 to Republican control after 50 years of Democratic control in the House? It was because 1994 broke the model. How did we get it in 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 2006, where the Democrats retook the House? It was because turnout broke the model. 2018. Same thing. It's some. It's a power we don't have in U.S. Senate races. It's a power we don't have in statewide races. But when you show up to vote in midterms and in primaries and in local elections, you can change the ability of line drawers to game the system against you. Best answer ever. I mean, it, it is. And yet, until then, if you really want to, if you want, if you want to monitor this process, if you want to hold your representatives accountable, there are there are ways. Um, whether whether you live in a state where you have a an independent redistricting commission, sometimes those redistricting commissions are sourced from voters. They they will select voters to participate in them and to and to serve on them. Just like that's jury exactly duty. what they've done. Basically, right? basically people apply, and it's ordinary citizens. They're not all experts. In fact. Your, people who have worked for a political party or run for office are often disqualified from serving on the redistricting commission. So it's it's usually it's it's one of the good things about independent redistricting commissions is they 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 are largely designed. And if you look at HR one, for instance, as well in in Congress, it has a similar design where they're they're trying to get people who are not professional political operatives or candidates. And who don't, exactly, because they don't have a self-interest to serve except as a voter, right? Right. Um, which, which I think is fantastic. So there's that. If you live in one of those states, you could potentially uh, participate in that. Uh, you, uh, David mentioned you can go to a hearing. Oftentimes, these plans will be presented to the public. It won't be widely advertised. You'll have to seek it out. There won't be very many people there, which is why you should go. Because there won't be very many people there. And the people who show up often have uh, a disproportionate uh, influence on, on the court or whoever's holding the hearing on, on their takeaway from that, uh, from that session. But they do often ask for public input. What do you think about these plans? Um, so you can also, I know I've said this before about other topics, but you need to know who your local representatives are. Look them up and call them. Let them know you're paying attention. That goes a long way. Just putting them on notice that you're paying attention as a, if you talk, as a voter. It, that's exactly right. If you talk to elected members, whether it's at the state legislative level or Congress, they will tell you that a phone call or a handwritten letter, more, even more than an email, email's fine if that's all you can do, it's, uh, but, but a phone call resonates. They keep track of that. They know, they know what's happening about that. They know they're being held accountable. That's really important. I mean, look, I don't want politicians aren't all corrupt. I mean, <laughs> this, this right. is most poli I wanna, uh, many politicians. They want to be responsive to their voters. They want to try to do they, they, they believe they were sent there to do good. But sometimes political considerations get in the way. And sometimes it's important for all of us as citizens to remind them of why they ran in the first place, which was to serve us.
David, I'm mindful of our time. Um, we will put some links to organizations that are doing good work in this space uh, in the show notes of this episode, um, including even if you want to get your hands dirty in some uh, in some some of the software we talked about. Uh, there's an app called Dave's Redistricting app. I think that's just recently been released. We'll put some resources in the show notes if you if you really want to go deeper into this, David. Th- I. I I have enjoyed this conversation because it's so it's one of those important things that only happens every decade that very few people understand and everybody sort many people misunderstand and I'm just I'm grateful to you for for being here and breaking it all down for us. Oh uh, th- thanks for having me. I, I honestly it, every redistricting cycle is really important but there's a particular context right now that I think exists with how much um American elections overall have been delegitimized, even from the White House itself. Um, and this is going to be a particularly important um, time, and we're particularly at risk because the political considerations in each state are, are are generally entirely one way or the other. So there's going to be a lot of pressure for for political parties to maximize their power in this environment, and we're going to have to hold them accountable. And not to mention the the line that you can draw from the racial unrest and everything that happened in 2020 from George Floyd's murder all the way through to this the, to to the way the Voting Rights Act protects minority voting rights through to 2022's midterm elections and there the 2021's redistricting process has enormous influence over how those how those midterms are going to play out I, I think that's exactly right I mean whether it's based on the truth of systemic racism that we have in this country and, and or it's based on the lie of of uh, illegitimate elections in our country the feeling of disenfranchisement the feeling of being un, unrepresented can be volatile and um and it it's why all of us have an interest in making sure that communities feel as if they're represented and um and that that's particularly true for minority communities given our history of racism yeah yes Okay. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I'm I'm on Twitter at, at Becker David J. Um, my organization is the Center for Election Innovation and Research. We're a nonpartisan nonprofit, and you can find it at electioninnovation.org. Um, and I feel free to come to our website and uh, check me out on Twitter. All right. That's a wrap. Thanks, David. All right. Thanks a lot, Ron. Thank you to everyone at home for listening. If you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. If you enjoy the show and find it meaningful, you can also help us by rating and reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this episode. It helps us rise in the rankings so that new listeners can find us. And make sure you're following us on social media. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at politicologypod. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.